Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fortations Live to Tape podcast. We are recording The South Sea Tales by Jack London, and I wanted to say before we read these next two stories that it, they are quite explicit. It does contain uh, an account of the slave trade and uh, stories within that, so it may be uh, triggering. I actually recorded this before where I, you know, censored out all the words, but I thought that uh, looking back that it kind of changed the context of the story too much, so I'm going to read uh, the story as it's written, uh, but there is a considerable amount of uh, language using um, the N-word in a derogatory de uh, way. So if you want to skip this episode, that's totally fine. Uh, it was kind of triggering to read it the first time, uh, but we're, I'm going back and reading it you know, uncensored, so this is not really an episode that's and acceptable for younger audiences or uh, people that might be triggered with it because it is uh, quite uh, a traumatic read. So here we go. The Terrible Solomons. There is no gain saying that the Solomons are a hard bitten bunch of islands. On the other hand, there is a worse place in the there are worse places in the world. But to the new chum who has no constitution, understanding of men and life in the rough, the Solomons may indeed prove terrible. It is true that fever and dysentery are perpetually on the walkabout. The lonesome skin disease abound, and the air is saturated with poison that bites into every pore, cut into abrasion, and plants malignant ulcers, and that many strong men who escape dying there in return as wrecks to their own countries. It is also true that the native of the Solomons are a wild lot with a heavy appetite for human flesh and a fad for collecting human heads. Their highest instinct of sportsmanship is to catch a man with his back turned and to smite him in a cunning blow with a tomahawk that serves, severs the spinal column at the base of the brain. It is equally true that on some islands such as Malata, the profit and lost account of social intercourse is calculated in homicides. Heads are a medium of exchange, and white heads are extremely valuable. Very often a dozen villages take villages make a jackpot which the fathoms moon by moon against the time when some brave warrior presents a white man's head, fresh and gory, and claims the pot. All the foregoing is quite true, and yet there are white men who have lived in the Solomons a score of years and who feel homesick when they go away from them. A man needs only be careful and lucky to live a long time in the Solomons, but he must also be of the right sort. He must have the hallmark of the inevitable white man stamped upon his soul. He must be inevitable. He must be a certain grand carelessness of odds and certain colossal self-satisfaction and racial ego egotism that convinces him that one white is better than a hundred niggers every day in the week, and that on Sunday he is able to clean out two thousand niggers, for such are the things that have made the white man inevitable. 
Oh, and one thing, the white man who wishes to be inevitable must not merely despise the lesser breeds and think a lot of himself, but he must also fail to be too long on his imagination. He must not understand too well the instincts and customs and the mental process of the blacks, the yellows, and the browns, for it is in such a fashion that the white race has tramped its royal road around the world. Bernie Alcourt was not inevitable. He was too sensitive, too finely strung, and he possessed too much imagination. The world was much was too much with him. He projected himself too quiveringly into his environment. Therefore, the last place in the world for him to come was the Solomons. He did not come expecting to stay. A five-week stopover between steamers, he decided, would satisfy all of the primitives primitive he felt thrumming the strings of his being at least so he at least so he had told the lady tourists on the makabo through its different different terms and they worshipped him as a hero for they were lady tourists and they would know only of the safety of the steamer deck as she thread her way through the solomons there was an old another man on board whom the ladies took no notice he was a little shivered wisp of a man with a withered skin the color of mahogany. His name was on the passenger list, does not matter, but the other name, Captain Mao, was a name for niggers to conjure with and to scare naughty pickamies to the righteous from New Hanover to the New Herb- Hebrides. He had fond sav- he had farmed savages and savagery, and from fever and hardship, the crack of Snyder's and the lash of the overseers, he had wrestled five million of money in the form of beech demur, sandalwood, pearl shells, and turtle shells, ivory nuts and copra, grasslands, trading stations, and plantations. Captain Mao's little finger, which was broken, had more inevitableness in it than Bernie Ackwright's whole carcass. But then the lady tourists had nothing by which to judge save appearance, and Bernie certainly was a fine-looking man. Bernie talked with Captain Mao in the smoking room, confided to him in his attentions of seeing life red and bleeding in the Solomons. Captain Mao agreed that the intention was ambitious and honorable. It was not only it was not until several days later that he became interested in Bernie when that young adventurer insisted on showing him an automatic forty four caliber pistol. Bernie explained that the mechanism and demonstrated by slipping and loading a magazine up the hollow butt. It is so simple, he said. He shot the outer barrel back along the inner one. It loads and it cocks it, you see. And then all I have to do is pull the trigger eight times as fast as I can quiver my finger. See that safety clutch? That is what I like about it. It is safe. It is positively foolproof. He slipped out the magazine. You see how safe it is? As he held it in his hand, the muzzle came in line with Captain Mao's stomach. Captain Mao's blue eyes looked at it unswervingly. Would you mind pointing that in some other direction, he asked. It is perfectly safe, Bernie assured him. I withdrew the magazine. It is not loaded now, you know. A gun is always loaded, but this one isn't. Turn it away just the same. Captain Mao's voice was flat and metallic and low, but his eyes never left the muzzle, 
until the line of it was drawn past him and away from him. I'll bet a fiver it isn't loaded, Bernie proposed warmly. The other shook his head. Then I'll show you. Bernie started to pull the muzzle to his own temple, with the evident intention of pulling the trigger. Just a second, Captain Mouse said quietly, reaching out for his hand. Let me look at it. He pointed it seaward and pulled the trigger. A heavy explosion followed, instantaneously with the sharp click of the mechanism that flipped a hot smoking cartridge sideways along the deck. Bernie's jaw, Bernie's jaw, jaw dropped in amazement. I slipped the barrel back once, didn't I? He explained. It was silly of me, I must say. He giggled feebly and sat down in the steamer chair. The blood had ebbed from his face, exposing dark circles under his eyes. His hands were trembling, and unable to guide the shaking cigarette to his lips. The world was too much with him, and he saw himself with dripping brains prone upon the deck. Really, he said, really. It's a pretty weapon, said Captain Mal, returning the automatic to him. The commissioner was on board the Manicuo, returning from Sydney, and by his permission a stop was made at Ugi to land a missionary, and at Ugi lay the catch Aria, Captain Hansen's skipper. Now the Aria was one of many vessels owned by Captain Mao, and it was at his suggestion and by his invitation that Bernie went aboard the Aria as guest for four days recruiting for a four day recruiting cruise on the coast of Malata. Thereafter the Aria would drop him at Reminch Plantation, also owned by Captain Mao where Bernie would remain for a week and then be sent over to Tolgai, the seat of the government, where he would become the commissioner's guest. Captain Mao was responsible for two other suggestions, which, given he disappears from the narrative, one was to Captain Hansen and the other to Mr. Herringwell, manager of Remington Plantation. Both suggestions were similar in terror and tenor, namely to give Mr. But mainly to give Mr. Bertram Ackwright an insight into the rawness and readiness of the life in the Solomons. Also, it is whispered that Captain Mal mentioned that a case of scotch would be coincidental with any particular gorgeous insight Mr. Ackwright might receive. Yes, Swartz always was too pig-headed, you see. He took four of his boat cruise to Tolgai to be flogged officially. You know then started you know then started back with them in the whale boat. It was petty squirrel and the boat capsized just outside. Swartz was the only one drowned, of course. It was an accident. Was it really? Bernie asked, only half interested, staring hard at the black man at the wheel. Ugai had dropped astern and the aria was sliding along through the summer sea toward the wooden ranges of Malata. The helmsman who so attracted Bernie's eyes sported a ten-penny nail stuck skewerwise through his nose. About his neck was a string of pants of pant buttons thrust through the hole in his ear were a can opener, the broken handle of a toothbrush, a clay pipe, the brass wheel of an alarm clock, and several Winchester rifle cartridges. On his chest, suspended from around his neck, hung the half of a china plate, some forty similar 
appeared blacks lay about the deck, fifteen of which were boat crew, the remainder being fresh labor recruits. Of course it was an accident, spoke up Aria's mate Jacob, a slender, dark-haired man who looked more of a professional professor than a sailor. Johnny Beedip nearly had the same kind of accident. He was bringing back several from a flogging when they capsized him, but he knew how to swim as well as they did, and two of them were drowned. He used the boat sketcher as a result revolver. Of course, it was an accident. Quite common, them accidents, remarked the skipper. You see that man at the wheel, Mr. Ackright? He's a man-eater. Six months ago, he and the rest of the boat's crew drowned and then captain of the aria. They did it on deck, sir, right aft there by the miser traveler. The deck was in a shocking state, said the mate. Do I understand? Bernie began. Yes, just that, said Captain Hansen. It was an accidental drowning. But on deck? Just so. I don't mind telling you, in confidence, of course, that they used an axe. This pr present crew of yours? Captain Hansen nodded. The other skipper always was too careless, explained the mate. But he just turned his back and went when they let him have it. We haven't any show down here. The skipper's compliment. The government protects a nigger against the white man every time. You can't shoot first. You've got to give the nigger first shot, or else the government calls it murder, and you go to Fuji. That's why there's so many drowning accidents. Dinner was called, and Bernie and the skipper went below, leaving the mate to watch on deck. Keep an eye out for that black devil, Akai was the skipper's parting caution. I haven't liked his looks for several days. Right out, said the mate. Dinner was part away long when the skipper was in the middle of his story of cutting out of the Scottish cutting out of the Scottish chefs. Yes, he was saying, she was the finest vessel on the coast. But when she missed days and before ever she hit the reef, the canoe started for her. There were five white men and a crew of twenty Santa Cruz boys and Samoans, and the only supercargo escaped. Besides, there were sixty recruits. They were all K-eyed. K-eyed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I mean they were eaten. Then there was the James Edward, a dandy rigged. But at that moment, there was a sharp oath from the mate on deck and a chorus of savage cries. A revolver went off three times, and then was heard a loud splash. Captain Hansen had sprung up from the companionway on the instant, and Bernie's eyes had been fascinated by a glimpse of him drawing his revolver as he sprang. Bernie went up and more circumspectly, hesitating before he put his head above the companionway slide, but nothing happened. The mate was shaking with excitement, his revolver in hand. Once he started and jumped, half jumped around as if danger threatened his back. One of the natives fell overboard, he was saying, in a queer, tense voice. He couldn't swim. Who was it? the skipper demanded. Akai, was the answer. But I say, you know, I heard shots, Bernie said, in trembling eagerness for his scented adventure, an adventure that was happily over with. The mate whirled upon him, snarling. It's a damn lie. There ain't been a shot fired. The nigger fell overboard. Captain Hansen regarded Bernie with an unblinking, lackluster eye. I thought Bernie was beginning. 
Shots, said Captain Hansen, dreamily. Shots, did you hear any shots, Mr. Jacob? Not a shot, replied Mr. Jacob. The skipper looked at his guest triumphantly and said, evidently an accident. Let's go down, Mr. Ackroyd, and finish dinner. Bernice slept that night in the captain's cabin, a tiny stateroom off the main cabin. The forward bulkhead was decorated with stands of rifles. Over the bunk were three more rifles. Under the bunk was a big drawer, with which, when he pulled it out, he found filled with ammunition, dynamite, and several boxes of detonators. He elected to take the settee on the opposite side. Lines conspicuously on the table was the Arya's log. Bernie did not know that it had been especially prepared for the occasion by Captain Mal, and he read therein how on September 21st, two boats' crews had fallen overboard and been drowned. Bernie read between the lines and knew better. He read how the Arya's whaleboat had been bushwhacked at Sulu and had lost three men, of how the skipper discovered the cooks doing human flesh on the galley fire, flesh purchased by the boat crews ashore Fuji, and how an accidental discharge of dynamite while signaling had killed another boat's crew of night attacks, ports fled between the dawn, attacked by bushmen in mangroves, swamped and by fleets of saltwater men in the larger passages. One item that occurred with meticulous frequency was death by dysentery. He noticed with alarm that two white men had also died, guests like himself, on the aria. I say you know, Bernie said the next day to Captain Hansen. I've been glancing through your log. The skipper displayed a quick vexation that the log had been left lying about. And all that dysentery, you know, that's all rot. Just like the accidental drowning, Bernie continued. What does dysentery really stand for? The skipper openly admired his guest's acumen, stiffened himself to make an indignant denial, then gracefully surrendered. You see, it's like this, Mr. Ackwright. These islands have got a bad enough name as it is. It's getting harder every day to sign on white men. Suppose a white man is killed. The company has to pay through the nose for another man to take his job. But if the man merely dies of sickness, it is all right. The new chums don't mind disease. What they draw the line at is being murdered. I thought the skipper of the Arya had died of dysentery when I took this, his billet. Then it was too late. I signed the contract. Besides, said Mr. Jacobs, there is altogether too many accidental drownings anyway. I don't look right. It's the fault of the government. A white man hasn't the chance to defend himself from the niggers. Yes, look at the princess and that Yankee mate the skipper took up the tail she carried five white men besides a government agent the captain the agent and the supercargo were ashore in two boats they were killed to the last man the mate and bosom with about fifteen of the crew samoans and togans were on board a crowd of niggers came off from shore first thing the mate knew the bosom and the crew were killed in the first rush. The mate grabbed three cartridge belts and two Winchesters and skinned up to the cross trees. He was the sole survivor, and you can't blame him for being mad. He pumped one rifle till he got so hot he couldn't hold it. Then he pumped the other. The deck was black with niggers. He cleaned them out. He dropped them as they went over the rail. 
and he dropped them as fast as they picked up their paddles. When they jumped into the water and started to swim for it, he, being mad, got half a dozen more. And what did he get for it? Seven years in Fuji, snapped the mate. The government said he wasn't justified in shooting after they'd taken to the water, the skipper explained. And that's why they die of dysentery nowadays, the mate added. Just fancy, said Bernie, as he felt a longing for the cruise to be over. Later on in the day, he interviewed the black who had been pointed out to him as a cannibal. His fellow name was Sumasai. He had spent three years on Queensland Plantation. He had been to Samoa and Fuji and Sydney, and as a boat crew had been on recruiting schooners through New Britain, New Ireland, New Guinea, and the Admiralties. Also, he was a wag and had been taken a line on the skipper's conduct. Yes, he had eaten many men. How many? He could not remember the tally. Yes, white men, too. They were very good, unless they were sick. He had once eaten a sick one. My word, he cried at the recollection. Me sick, plenty along him. Me belly walks about too much. Bernie shuddered and asked about heads. Yes, samurai, samsai, had several hidden ashore, in good condition, sun-dried and smoked cured. One uh, was of a captain of a schooner. It had long whiskers. He could t sell it for two quid. Black men heads would sell for one quid. He had some pygmy heads in poor condition that he could let go for ten bob. Five minutes afterwards, Bernie found himself sitting on the companion way slide alongside a black with a horrible skin disease. He sheared off, and on inquiry was told that it was leprosy. He hurried below and washed himself with antiseptic soap. He took many antiseptic washes in the course of the day, for every native on board was afflicted with a malignant ulcer of some sort or other. As the aria drew into anchorage, in the midst of mangrove swamp, and double row of barbed wire was stretched around above her rail, that looked like bushness when Bernie saw the shore canoes alongside armed with spears, bows and arrows, and Sydney he wished more earnestly than ever that the cruise was over. That evening the natives were slow in leaving the ship at sundown. A number of them checked the mate when he ordered them ashore. Never mind, I'll fix them, said Captain Hansen, diving below. When he came back, he showed Bernie a stick of dynamite attached to the fish hook. Now it happened that the paper-wrapped bottle of, hydro of chloride with a piece of harmless fuse projected can fool anybody. It fooled Bernie, and it fooled the natives. When Captain Hansen lighted the fuse and hooked the fish hook onto the tail end of a native's loincloth, the native was smitten with so an ardent desire for sure that he forgot to shed the loincloth and started forward, the fuse sizzling and sputtering at his rear, the natives in his path taking headers over the barbed wire at every jump. Bernie was horror-stricken, so Captain Henson had he had forgotten his twenty-five recruits, on each of which he had paid thirty shillings advance. They had went over the side along with the shore-dwelling folk, and followed by him who trailed the sizzling chloride bottle. 
Bernie did not see the bottle go off, but his mates opportunely discharged a stick of real dynamite aft where it would harm nobody. Bernie would have sworn in any admiral court that the nigger blown to flinders. The flight of the twenty-five recruits had actually lost the Arias forty pounds, and since they had taken to the bush, there was no hope of recovering them. The skipper and his mate proceeded to drown their sorrow in cold tea. The cold tea was in a whiskey bottle, so Bernie did not know that it was cold tea they were mopping up. All he knew was that there were two men, that the two men had gotten very drunk and argued eloquently at length as to whether the exploded nigger should be reported as a case of dysentery or as accidental drowning. When they snored off to sleep, he was the only white man left, and he kept a perilous watch till dawn, in fear of an attack from shore and an uprising of the crew. Three more days the Arya spent on the coast, and three more nights the skipper and the mate drunk fondly over, over fondly of cold tea, leaving Bernie to keep the watch. They knew he could be depended upon, while he was equi- equally certain that if he lived he would report their drunken conduct to Captain Mal. Then the Arya dropped anchor at Rimage Plantation on Guadalcar, and Bernie landed on the beach with a sigh of relief and shook hands with the manager. Mr. Herringwell was ready for him. Now you mustn't be alarmed, as some of our fellows seem downcast, Mr. How- Harrywell said, having drawn him aside in confidence. There's been talk of an outbreak and two or three suspicious signs, I'm willing to admit, but personally think I personally think it's all poppycock. How? How many blacks have you on the plantation? Bernie asked with a sinking heart. We're working out four hundred just now, replied Mr. Herringwell cheerfully. But three of us with you, of course, and the skipper and mate of Arya can handle them all right. Bernie turned to meet one McTavish, the storekeeper who scarcely acknowledged the introduction. Such was his eagerness to present his resignation. It being that I am a married man, Mr. Herringwell, I cannot very well afford to remain on any longer. Trouble is working up, as plain as the nose on your face. The niggers are going to break out, and there'll be another ho-ho-bo horror here. What is a ho-no-horror? Bernie asked after the storekeeper had been persuaded to remain until the end of the month. Oh, he means ho-ho-no-plantation on Isabel said the manager. The niggers killed the five white men ashore, captured the schooner, and killed the captain and mate, and escaped to the bloody Malata. But I always said they were careless on Honobo. They won't catch us napping here. Come along, Mr. Ackright, and see our view from the veranda. Bernie was too busy wondering how he could get away to Toluga. Tolugi to the commissioner's house to see much of the view. He was still wondering when a rifle exploded very near to him, being his back. At the same moment, his arm was nearly dislocated. So eagerly did Mr. Harrington drag him indoors. I say, old man, that was a close shave, said the manager, pawing him over to see if he had been hit. I can't tell you how sorry I am, but it was broad daylight and I never dreamed. Bernie was beginning to turn pale. They got the other manager that 
They got the other manager that way, McTavish vouched, and dashed fine chap he was, blew his brains out all over the veranda. You notice the dark stain between the steps on the door? Bernie was ripe for a cocktail, which Mr. Herringwell pitched in, compounded for him. But before he could drink it, a man riding trousers and putties entered. What's the matter now? the manager asked, after one look from the newcomer's face. Is the river up again? River he bowed. It's the niggers. Stepped out of the cane grass, not a dozen feet away, and walloped at me. It was a snider, and he shot from the hip. Now that I want to know is where he get that snider. Oh, I beg pardon. Glad to know you, Mr. Ackwright. Mr. Brown is my assistant, explained Mr. Herringwell. And now let's have that drink. But where'd that, where'd he get that Snyder? Mr. Brown insisted. I always objected to keeping those guns on the premises. They're still here, Mr. Herringwell, with a show of heat. Mr. Brown smiled incredulously. Come along and see, said the manager. Bernie joined the procession into the office, where Mr. Herringwell pointed triumphantly at the big packing case in the dusty corner. Well then, where did the or did the beggar get the Snyder? Harped Mr. Brown, but just then McTavish lifted the packing case. The manager stared and torn off the lid. The case was empty. They gazed at one another in horrified silence. Herringwell drooped wearily. Then McVane cursed. What I contend all along, the houseboys are not to be trusted. It does look serious, Herringwell admitted, but we come through it all right. This thing... The sanctuary niggers need is a shaking up. Will you gentlemen please bring your rifles to dinner, and will you, Mr. Brown, kindly prepare forty or fifty sticks of dynamite, make the fuses good and short, we'll give them a lesson, and now, gentlemen, dinner is served. One thing that Bernie detested was rice and curry, so it happened that he alone partook in an inviting omelette. He had quite finished the plate, when Herringwell helped himself to the omelet, one mouthful he tasted, then spat it out vacaciously. That's the second time, McTavish announced ominously. Herringwell was still hawking and spitting. Second time what? Bernie quivered. Poison, was the answer. That cook will be hanged yet. That, the way the bookkeeper went out at Cape March. Brown spoke up. Died horribly. They said on the Jesse that they heard him screaming three miles away. I'll put the cook in irons, spluttered Herringwell. Fortunately, we discovered it in time. Bernie sat paralyzed. There was no color in his face. He attempted to speak, but only an inarticulate words resulted. All eyed him anxiously. Don't say it, don't say it, McTavish cried in a tense voice. Yes, I ate it. Plenty of it. A whole plateful. Bernie cried explosively, like a diver suddenly regaining breath. The awful silence continued half a minute longer, and he read his fate in their eyes. Maybe if it was maybe it wasn't poisoned after all, said Herringwell, dismissively. Call the cook, said Brown. In came the cook, grinning a grinning black boy, nose nose spiked and ear plugged. Here, you, wee wee, what a name that Herringwell bellowed, pointing accusingly at the omelette. 
Wee Wee was very naturally frightened and embarrassed. Him a good fellow, Kai Kai, he muttered apologetically. Make him eat it, suggested McTavish. That's a proper test. Herringwell filled a spoon with the stuff. Herringwell filled a spoon with the stuff and jumped for the cook, who fled in panic. That settles it, was Brown's solemn, pr solemn pronouncement. He won't eat it. When Mr. Brown, will you please go out and put the irons on him? Herringwell turned cheerfully to Bernie. It's all right, old man. The commissioner will deal with him, and if you die, depends on it. He will be hanged. Don't think the government will do it, objected Matavish. But gentlemen, gentlemen, Bernie cried. In the meantime, think of me. Herringwell shrugged his shoulders pityingly. Sorry, old man, but it's a native poison, and there are no antidotes for native poisons. Try and compose yourself, if too sharp reports of rifle from without interrupted the discourse, and Brown entering reloaded his rifle and sat down to the table. The cook is dead, he said. Fever, a rather sudden attack. I was just telling Mr. Ackwright that there are no antidotes for native poisons. Except gin, said Brown. Herringwell called himself an absent-minded idiot and rushed for the gin bottle. Neat, man, neat, he warned Bernie, who gupped down a tumbler two-thirds full of raw spirits and coughed and choked from the angry bite of it till the tears ran down his cheeks. Herringwell took his pulse and temperature and made a, sure, made a show of looking out for him and doubted that the omelette had been poisoned. Brown and McTavish, who also doubted, but Bernie's discerned an insincere ring in their voice, his appetite had left him, and he took his own pulse stealthily under the table. There was no question but what it was increasing, but he failed to ascribe it to the gin he had taken. McTavish, rifle in hand, went out on the veranda to recon to, to reconjure. They're massing up at the cookhouse, was his report, and they've no end of Snyders. My idea is to sneak around to the other side and take them in flank. Stride the first blow, you know. You will come along, Brown? Herringwell ate unsteadily, while Bernie discovered that his pulse had leaped up five beats. Nevertheless, he could not help jumping when his rifles began to go off. Above the scathing of the Snyders, he could hear the pumping of Brown and McTavish's Winchesters, all against the background of a demonical screeching and yelling. They've got them on the run, Herringwell remarked, as voices and gunshots faded away in the distance. Scarcely were Brown and McTavish back at the table when the later recountered. They've got dynamite, he said. Then let's charge them with dynamite, Herringwell proposed, thrusting half a stick's half a dozen sticks into each other's pockets and equipping themselves with lighted cigars they started for the door and just then it happened they blamed mctavish for it afterward and he admitted that the charges had been a trifle excessive but at any rate it went off under the house which lifted it up cornerwise and settled back on its foundation half of the china on the table was shattered while the eight eight clock stopped Yelling for vengeance, the three men rushed out into the night, and the bombardment began. 
When they returned, there was no Bernie. He had dragged himself away to the office, barricaded himself in, and sunk upon the floor in a gin-soaked nightmare, wherein he died a thousand deaths while the valerious fight went on around him. In the morning, sick and headachy from the gin, he crawled out to find the sun still in the sky and God presampled in heaven, for his hosts were alive and uninjured. Herringwell pressed him to stay longer, but Bernie insisted on sailing immediately for the Aria, for Tilgai, where until the following following steamer day he struck close by the commissioner's house. There were lady tourists on the outgoing steamer, and Bernie was again a hero, while Captain Mao, as usual, passed unnoticed. But Captain Mao sent back from Sydney two cases of the best scotch, whiskey on the market, for he was not able to make up his mind as to whether it was Captain Hansen or Captain Marling who had given Bernie Ackroyd the more gorgeous insight into life in the Solomons. The Inevitable White Man The black man will never understand the white, nor the white the black, as long as the black is black and the white is white. So said Captain Woodward, we sat in the parlor of Charlie Roberts' pub in Appai, drinking long Abdu Hamids, compounded and shared with us by the aforesaid Charlie Roberts, who claimed the recipe direct from Stevens, famous for having invented the Abdu Hamid at the time when he was spurred on by the Nile thirst. The Stevens, who were responsible for with catcher of cartoon, and who passed out at the siege of Ladysmith. Captain Woodward, short and squat, elderly, burdened by forty years of tropical sun, and with the most beautiful liquid brown eyes I ever saw in a man, spoke from a vast experience, the criss-cross of scars on his bald palate, bespoke a tomahawk intimacy with the black, and of equal intimacy with the advertisement, front and rear on the right side of his neck, where the arrow had at one time entered and pulled clean through. He explained he had been in a hurry on that occasion. The arrow impeded his running, and he felt that he could not take the time to break off the head and pull out the shaft, the way it had come in. At the present moment, he was commander of the Savai, the big steamer that recruited labor from the westward of the German plantations on the Samoa. Half the trouble is the plenty stupidity of the whites, said Roberts, pausing to take a swig from his glass and to curse the Samoan bar boy in affectionate terms. If the white man would lay himself out a bit to understand the workings of the black mind, most of the messes would be avoided. I've seen a few who claim the understood niggers, Captain Woodward retorted, and I've always took notice that they were the first to be kai kai eaten. Look at the missionary in New Guinea and the new Hebrews, the martyr isle of Aragoma, and all the rest. Look at the Austrian expedition that was cut to pieces in the Solomons, in the bushes of Guadalcar, and look at the traders themselves, and a sore of years of experience, making their brag, and no nigger would ever get them, and whose heads to this day are ornamented in rafters of the canoe houses. 
There was old Johnny Simmons, 26 years on the raw edge of the Malaysia, sworn he knew the niggers like a book and that they'd never do for him. And he passed out at Morvo Lagoon, New Georgia, had his head sawed off by a black Mary, a woman, and any old nigger with one leg having left the other leg in the mouth of a shark while diving for diamond fish. There was Billy Watts, horrible reputation as a nigger killer, a man who scared the devil. I remember a line at Cape Little, New Ireland, you know, when the nigger stole half a case of trade tobacco, cost about three dollars and a half. In retaliation, he turned out six, turned out, shot six niggers, smashed up their war canoe, and burned two villages. And it was at Cape Little, four years afterward, that he jumped along a fifty buku boys he had with him, fishing, fishing beach mer. In five minutes, they were all dead, with the exception of three boys who got away in a canoe. Don't talk to me about understanding the nigger. The white man's mission is to farm the world, and it is a big enough job cut out for him. What time has he got left to understanding niggers anyway? Just so, said Roberts, and how someone it doesn't seem necessary, after all, to understand the niggers. In direct proportion to the white man's stupidity is the success in is his success in farming the world. And putting the fear of God into the nigger's heart, Captain Woodward blurted out, Perhaps you're right, Roberts. Perhaps it is his stupidity that makes him s succeed. And surely one phase of his stupidity is his inability to understand the niggers. But there is one thing sure. The white man has to run the niggers wherever he understands them or not. It is inevitable. It is fate. And of course, the white man is inevitable. It is the nigger's fate, Roberts broke in, to tell the white man there's pearl shells in some lagoon infested by ten thousand howling cannibals, and he'll head there all by his lonely, with half a dozen kankas, divers, and a tin alarm clock for a, a chronometer. chronometer. All packed like sardines on a commandous five-ton sketch whispers that there is a gold strike in the north pole and that same inevitable white-skinned creature will set out at once armed with pick and shovel a side of bacon and the latest patent hook rocker and what's more he'll get there tip it off to him that there is diamonds on the red-hot ramparts of hell and mr white man will storm the ramparts and set old satan himself to pick and shovel work what that's what comes of being stupid and inevitable what i wonder what the black man must think of the inevitable is i said captain woodward broke into quiet laughter his eyes remained gleam i just wonder what the niggers of maui thought and still must be thinking of the one inevitable white man we had on board when we visited them in the duchess he explained Roberts mixed with three more Ab Robert mixed three more Abduhamids. That was twenty years ago. Saxforth was his name. He was certainly the most stupid man I have ever saw, but he was an inevitable as death. There was only one thing that chap could do, and that was shoot. I remember the first time I ran into him, 
right here in Apai, twenty years ago. That was before your time, Roberts, and I was sleeping at Dutch Henry Hotels, down where the market is now. Ever heard of him? He made a tidy stake, smuggling arms into the rebels, sold out his hotel, and was killed in Sydney just six weeks afterwards in a saloon row. But saxophone, one night I just got to sleep when a couple of cats being to sing in the courtyard. It was out of bed and up and window, water jug in hand. But just then I saw, but just then I heard the window of the next room go up, Two shots were fired, and the window was closed. I failed to impress you with the celery of the transaction. Ten seconds at the outside, up went the window, bang bang went the revolver, and down went the window. Whoever it was, he never stopped to see the effect of his shots. He knew. Do you follow me? He knew. There was no more cat concert, and in the morning there lay two of the offenders, stone dead, it was marvelous to me. I still, it still is marvelous. First, it was starlight and saxophone shot without drawing a bead. Next, he shot so rapidly that two reports were like a double report, and finally, he knew he had hit his marks without looking to see. Two days afterward, he came aboard to see me. I was mate then on the Duchess, a whacking big 150-ton schooner, a blackbirder. And let me tell you, the blackbirders were blackbirders in those days. There weren't any government protection for us either. It was rough work, give and take. If we were finished and northing, said, we ran niggers from every South Sea island. They didn't kick us from, they didn't kick us off from. Well, Saxman came on board. John Saxman was the name he gave. He was a sandy little man, hair and complexity, complex sandy, and eyes sandy too. Nothing striking about him. His old soul was as neutral as his color scheme. He said he was strapping, strapped and wanted to ship on board. We could go, he would go cabin boy, cook, supercargo, or common sailor. Didn't know anything about any of the billets, but said he was willing to learn. I didn't want him, but his but his shooting had so impressed me that I took him as a common sailor, wages three pounds a month. He was willing to learn all right, I'll say that much, but he was constitutionally unable to learn anything. He could no more box the compass than could mix drinks, like Robert here, and for Sterling I... He gave me my first gray hairs. I never dared risk him at the wheel when we were running in a big sea. Well, full by and by, and close and by, were insoluble mysteries. Couldn't ever tell the difference between a sheet and a tackle. Simply wouldn't. The four-throat jig and the jib-jig were jib jig were all one to tell him tell him to slack off the main sheet and before you know it he'd dropped the peak he fell overboard three times and he couldn't swim but he was always cheerful and never seasick and he was the most willing man i ever knew he was an uncommunicative soul never talked about himself his history so far as we're concerned began the day of he signed on the duchess where he learned to shoot, and the stars alone can tell. He was a Yankee that much we knew about the twang in his speech, 
and that he was all we, we ever did know. And now we began to get to the point. We had had bad luck in the new Hebrides, only fourteen boys and five weeks, and we ran up before the southeast for the Solomons. Maltain and us, as now, was good recruiting ground, and we ran into Mao on the northwestern corridor. There was a shore reef and an outer reef, and a mighty nervous anchorage, but we made it all right and fired off our dynamite as a signal to the niggers to come down and be recruited. In three days we got not a boy. The niggers came off to us in their canoes by hundreds, but then only laughed when we showed them beads and calicoes and hatchets and talked of the delights of plantation work in the Samoa. On the fourth day there came a change. Fifty-odd boys signed on and were billeted in the main hold with the freedom of deck. Of course, looking back, the wholesale signing on was suspicious, but at the time we thought some powerful chief had removed the ban against recruiting. The morning of the fifth day, our boats went ashore, and as usual, one to cover the other, you know, in case of trouble. And as usual, the fifty niggers on board were on deck, loafing, talking, smoking, and sleeping. Saxforth and myself, along with four other sailors, were all that were left aboard. The two boats were manned and Gilbert's Islanders, and the other were Captain, the supercargo, and the recruiter, and the other which was the covering boat, which lay offshore a hundred yards, the second mate. Both boats were well armed. The trouble was little expected. Four of the sailors, including Saxon, were scraping the poop rail. The fifth sailor, rifle in hand, was standing guard, and the water tank just forward of the manifest. I was forward putting in the fishing licks on a new jaw for the foregaff. I just reached for my pipe, where I sat down, or I laid it down, when I heard the shot from shore. I straightened and looked up. Something struck me on the back of the head, partially stunning me, and knocked me to the deck. My first thought was that something had carried away aloft, but even as I went down before I struck the deck, I heard the devil's own tattoo of rifles from the boats, and twisting sideways, I caught a glimpse of the sailor who was standing guard. Two big niggers were holding his arms, and a third nigger from behind was braining him with a tomahawk. I can see it now, the water tank, the manifest, the ganging the gang hanging on to him, the hatchet descending on the back of his head, and all under the blazing sunlight. I was fascinated by the glowing vision of death. The tomahawk seemed to take a horribly long time to come down. I saw it land and the man's legs give under him as he, as he crumbled. The niggers held him up by sheer strength while he was hacked a couple more times. Then I got two more hacks on the head and decided it, I was dead. So did the brute that was hacking me. I was so too helpless to move. I lay there and watched them removing the sentry's head. I must say they did it slick enough. They were old hands at the business. The rifle firing from the boats had ceased, and I made no doubt that they were finished off, and that the end had come to everything. It had only a matter of moments when they 
would return for my head. They had inevitably taken the heads of the sailors aft. Heads are valuable on Meleta, especially white heads. They have a place of honor in the canoe houses of the saltwater natives. That particularly decorative effect the Bushmen got out of them, I didn't know, but they prized them just as much as saltwater crowd. I had a dim notion of escaping, and I crawled on hands and knees to the winch, where I managed to drag myself to feet. From there I could look aft and see three heads upon the cabin, the heads of three sailors I had given orders to for months. The niggers saw me standing and started for me. I reached for my revolver and found they must have taken it. I can't say I was scared. I've been near to death several times, but it never seemed easier than right then. I half-stunned, and nothing seemed to matter. The leading nigger had armed himself with a cleaver from the galley, and he grimaced like an ape as, per, as he prepared to slice me down, but the slice never made. He went down on the deck all of a heap, and I saw the blood gush from his mouth. In a dim way, I heard a rifle go off and continued to go off. Nigger after nigger went down. My senses began to clear, and I noted that there was never a miss. Every time the rifle went off, a nigger dropped, and I sat down on the deck besides the wrench and looked up. Perched in the cross tree was Saxon. How he had managed it, I can't imagine, for he had carried up with him two Winchesters. I don't know how many, how many bandoils of an ammunition, and he was now doing the one thing in the world that he was fitted to do. I've seen shooting and slaughter, but I have never saw anything like that. I sat by the wrench and watched the show. I was weak and faint, and it seemed to be all a dream. Bang, 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 bang went his rifle, and thud, thud, thud went to the niggers to the deck. It was amazing to see them all go down after their first rush to get me. When about a dozen had dropped, they seemed paralyzed, but he never left off pumping his gun. By the time the canoes and the two boats arrived from the shore, armed with Snyders and Winchesters, which they had captured in the boats, a full sade they let loose on saxophone was tremendous. Lucky for him, the niggers are only good at close range. They are not used to putting the gun to their shoulder. They wait until they are right on top of a man, and then they shoot from the hip. When his rifle got too hot, Saxwing changed off. That had been his idea when he carried two rifles with him. The astounding thing of the rapidity of his fire. Also, he never made a miss. If anything was inevitable, as that man was, it was the swiftness of it that made the slaughter so appalling. The niggers did not have time to think. When they did manage to think, they went over the side in a rush, capsizing the canoes, of course. Saxman never let up. The water was covered with them, and plump, 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 he dropped the bullets into them. Not a single miss. I could hear distinctively the thud of every bullet as it burned in human flesh. The niggers spread out and headed for the shore, swimming. The water was carpeted with bobbing heads, and I stood up, as in a dream, and watched it all, the bobbing heads and the heads that ceased to bob. Some of the long shots were magnificent. Only one man reached the beach, but as soon as he stood up to wade ashore, Saxman got him. It was beautiful. 
and when a couple of niggers ran down to drag him out of the water, Saxman got them too. I thought everything was over then, when I heard the rifle go off again. A nigger had come out of the cabin companion, and on the run for the rail, and gone down in the middle of it. The cabin must have been full of them. I counted twenty. They came up one at a time, and jumped for the rail, but they never got there. It reminded me of trap shooting. A black body would pop out of the companion, bang would go Saxon rifle, and down would go the black body. Of course, those below did not know what was happening on deck, so they continued to pop out until the last one was finished off. Saxon waited a while to make sure, and then came down on deck. He and I were left. He and I were all that was left of the Dutch's compliment, and I was pretty well to the bad when he was helpless now that the shooting was over under my direction he washed out my scalp wounds and sewed them all up a big drink of whiskey braced me to make an effort to get out there was nothing else to do all the rest were dead we tried to get up sail saxon hoisting and i holding the turn he was one more the stupider stupid lumberer he could couldn't hoist worth a cent and when i felt in faint he looked all up with us it looked all up with us when i came to saxon was steering sitting helplessly on the rail waiting to ask me what he should do i told him to overhaul the wounded and see if there were any able to crawl he gathered together six one i remember had broken leg but saxon said his arms were all right i lay in the shade, bruising the flies off and directing operations, while Saxon bossed his hospital gang. I'll be blessed if he didn't make those poor niggers heave at every rope on the pin rails before he found the halyards. One of them let go of the rope in the midst of hoisting and slipped down to the deck dead. But Saxon hammered the others and made them stick by the job. When the fore and main were up, I told him to knock the shackles out of the anchor chain and let her go i had i had had myself help at, helped aft to the wheel where i was going to make a shift at steering i guess i how he did it but instead of knocking the shackle out down went the second anchor and there was and there we were doubly moored in the end, he managed to knock out both shackles and outraised the sailor and Jim, and the Duchess filed away for the entrance. Our deck were a spectacle. Dead and dying niggers were everywhere, and they wedged away some of them in the most inconceivable places. The cabin was full of them where they had crawled off the deck and cashed in, but Saxon and his graveyard gang to work, heaving them overside, and over they went, the living and the dead. The sharks did. F the sharks had a fat picking that day. Of course, our four murdered sailors went the same way. Their heads, however, were put in sacks with weights, so that by no chance could they drift on the beach and fall into the hands of the niggers. Our five prisoners I decided to use as crew, but they decided otherwise. They watched their opportunity and went over the side. Saxman got two in mid-air with his revolver and would have shot the other three in the water 
if it hadn't if I hadn't stopped him. I was sick of the slaughter, you see, and besides they helped work the schooner out, but it was mercy thrown away, for the sharks got the three of them. I had brain fever or something after we got clear of the land. Anyway the Duchess lay hove for three weeks, and I pulled myself together and we jogged, we jogged on with her to Sydney. Anyway, those niggers of Maui learned the everlasting lesson that it is not good to monkey with a white man, in their case, Saxon, who is certainly inevitable. Charlie Roberts emitted a long whistle and said, Well, I should say so, but whatever came of Saxon, he drifted into seal hunting and became a crackerjack. For six years, he was high line on both the Victoria and San Francisco fleets. The seventh year, his schooner was seized by Bering Sea by a rushing cruiser. All hands, so the talk went, were slammed into the Siberian salt mines. At least I never heard of him since. Farming the world, Roberts muttered. Farming the world. Well, here's to them. Somebody's got to do it. Farm the world, I mean. Captain Woodward rubbed the crisscrosses on his bald head. I've done my share of it, he said. Forty years now, this will be my last trip. Then I'm going home to stay. I'll wager the wine you don't, Robert challenged. You'll die in the harness, not at home. Captain Woodward promptly accepted the bet, but personally I think Charlie Roberts has the best of it. So that was uh, that was the reading of The South Sea Tales by Jack London. Uh, the next uh, short story from the South Sea Tales will be the seed of McCoy. I will see everyone next week. Thank you for listening. I, I do understand that this has been a, a very, uh, you know, triggering two stories. And uh, I'll read ahead and, and warn you if the next two stories are uh, triggering as well. But I want to thank you for coming by. Uh, see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.